Let's open our Bibles this evening, Luke chapter number 6. Luke chapter number 6, the past uh, couple of Sunday evenings, we've been preaching on uh, this same passage and on this thought and this theme, devilish devices. Uh, how many of you know that the Bible tells us that we are to guard against the wiles of the devil, amen, and his devices? In other words, he has tactics, he has strategies that he employs as he seeks to gain influence in a person's life. I'm thankful that a uh, believer, a born-again believer, cannot be possessed by a devil, but we can be oppressed by them. And we cannot be indwelt by one, but we can be influenced by one. And Satan certainly desires that he might be able to gain a foothold in our lives and to be able to guide and govern us. Well, in Luke chapter number 11, Lord Jesus, verse 14, was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. It came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. Some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devil. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house fall. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub, and if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted and divideth his spoil. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. And we preached up to this point thus far. We talked the first week about the tactic of, uh, of unification and solidarity. Uh, in other words, the devil tries to present a unified front in his messaging and in his manda- mandates and in his uh, and in his principles. And then we talked about the tactic of fortification. He's like a strong man, and he guards his house and he keepeth his house and he puts up uh, guards and and fortifications and bulwarks and walls in people's lives uh, so that they're not able to get free and to get through. Notice with me verse 24 tonight. I want to preach to you on the tactic of multiplication. The Bible says in verse 24, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. Finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. When he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to be together in your house. Give us wisdom in these days, Lord. And uh, give us discernment. And give us an obedient heart, Lord Jesus Christ. That, Father, he may be the governor and guide of our lives. Father, I pray that the preached word tonight would go forth, would stir hearts, would uplift the name of the Lord Jesus and that men will be drawn unto you, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Here in the passage before us, we have what is basically a very, very simple and fundamental principle of how Satan seeks to work in the lives 
of people. And it essentially is this, that he will amass as many forces, as much influence as he possibly can. Uh, how many of you know there's such a thing as, as redundancy, as uh, putting up fail-saves, as having multiple people doing the same job? You'll see this at a workplace a lot of times. Multiple people trained on the same thing, so if something happens, there's somebody else to step in to the gap and to fill the role. Well, the devil will get as many people or as much influence in a person's life as he possibly can. This principle is illustrated through the means of, we might say a parable, although I think the Lord is really just stating a truism of a satanic influence in people's lives, but it's sort of spoken in the way of a, of a parable. It describes a man that is possessed of an unclean spirit. That unclean spirit is cast out of that man. It is it is expelled out of that man. It is removed from that man. But that unclean spirit does not cease to be. It does not cease to exist. Instead, the Bible says that it walketh about, in verse uh, 24, in dry places. Before we're done tonight, we'll talk about those dry places. Seeking rest and finding none. When he finds none, here's what he decides to do. He says, I will return unto my house whence I came out. Now, what does he mean when he says house? Well, it's obvious from the context that he means that man's wife, that man's body, that man's vessel. Because the Bible says in verse number 26 that he goeth and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. Meaning the, the person in this sentence uh, is talking about the devil. That He goes out and finds seven other devils worse than himself and then the Bible says they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man, that individual, is worse than the first. I believe what we have here is not only a cautionary tale as to how we respond to satanic influences in our life, but what I really believe we have here is a roadmap to becoming a reprobate. Can I tell you what the devil wants for every person's life? them to be a reprobate. He wants them to be an apostate. He wants them to turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen now, the devil's not satisfied just having a little bitty piece of your life. He's not going to stop until he has the whole He's not satisfied for you to just signal certain concessions to ungodliness or wickedness. He's not satisfied for you to just permit certain cursory quote-unquote sins into your life. He's not going to be satisfied until He has all of you and He will continue to fill whatever void in your life He can until He has the influence that He wants. I want you to notice a few things with me tonight. Verse 24, we see the dispossession of the unclean spirit. Notice first off His removal. The Bible says when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man. Now, we don't know the circumstances under which that spirit has gone out. But I think it is safe to say that given the context of our passage, the Lord Jesus was casting out devils back in verse number 14. I think it's safe to say that the Lord Jesus is talking about when a person would have a devil cast out of them by the power of God. Now, again, let me reiterate to you that when it comes to possessing, uh, in the sense that we see in the Word of God. And by the way, I believe it is still very prevalent today. I don't believe it manifests in the way that it manifested there, at least not here in the West. But uh, make no mistake about it, I think there's a lot of people that are satanically energized, led and guided by the devil himself. If you don't believe that, man, just walk through this world a little while. 
And you'll see some stuff that'll make your head spin. That'll have no other explanation than that. And uh, but can I remind you that uh, even for the believer, though we won't be possessed by a devil, we can't allow the devil to have an influence in our lives. We can like let me tell you something. The devil's a counterfeiter. I said this in Sunday school this morning. He's a counterfeiter. He wants to take whatever God does. He wants to tweak it and turn it for his purposes. In other words, his desire is not to craft something that is a polar opposite of what God's doing, but something as close to what God is doing as possible while still perverting it and corrupting it and using it for his purposes. To that end, listen to me. God has a will for your life. He has a plan for your life. I want to know and do the will of God. Amen? God has a will for your life, but the devil himself has a will for your life. He has a desire. He has a plan your life and he cannot if he cannot possess you he can plan out your path for you and he can you can allow him to direct you but can i remind you that the answer uh, that was given back here in the new testament is the same answer that is valid today the answer that it's always been and that's the power of god only god can arrest a person's life rest it from the power of the devil only the lord can give the victory that we truly need uh, all attempts at self-reformation that the world puts forth are always short-lived, they're always temporary. And even in a person's life, the, 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 the principle of this passage is that even when God does the work, if a person is not vigilant, uh, they can find themselves in the same problem again. But can I remind you that the only hope that we have for seeing the chains of satanic influence broken is the Lord Himself. Only God can loose those bonds. And that's what He did in this he cast out this devil. We see his removal. Notice his roaming. This is interesting to me. The Bible says that when that unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he doesn't cease to exist. He's not annihilated. He doesn't go, uh, we would imagine, down to hell, or he doesn't go to some other dimension. The Bible says he walketh through dry places seeking rest. That's interesting, that phrase, seeking rest. What it means is not necessarily rest in the sense of, of comfort, but it means seeking a resting place. How many of you know when you go up and down the interstate, they have places you can pull off and they have candy bar machines and, and Coke machines and they'll have bathrooms and some of them have showers. And what do we call those? We call those rest stops. And the idea is it's a place of respite where you can stop and do what you need to do or stop, take a break, stop and rest yourself. That's what's being spoken about here when it says seeking rest. He's looking for a stopping place. Can I remind you of something? Hey, if, if my Bible reads true, if this King James Bible is correct, and I believe it is, I believe it's 100% absolutely perfect, pure, bona fide, everything it ought to be and nothing that it shouldn't, then that tells me this, that there are at any given time multitudes of satanic influence of devils walking about just looking for somebody's life. They can sit down. Spirit is walking around and what's he looking for? He's looking for somewhere to sit down. He's looking for somewhere to dig in. He's looking somewhere. That means as we walk through this life, hey, listen, you may not be looking for him, but he's always looking for you. I'm reminded of what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The devil does it. The devil's servants do it. Satanic influences do it. Spiritual wickedness does it. I'm saying this. You don't have to look for trouble. It's looking for you. Trying to find a place to sit down. We see his roaming. But as he walks about, we notice that he finds that there is no place convenient for him. So what does he do in verse 24? The Bible says, In finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. We find his return 
to his previous abode. How instructive this is. Uh, That's interesting if you're one of those people walking around and hoping that uh, the devil does not put you in his sight. But think about it from the perspective of the man himself. That means that this man who was in the bonds and gall of iniquity whom the devil himself had in his chains was gloriously, miraculously delivered from the power of Satan by the power of God. It's entirely possible and I would say even plausible that as the Lord Jesus uh, reveals this truth, He has in His mind maybe people that in His uh, earthly ministry He had cast the devils out of. Jesus it was and is God, so He was and is omniscient, and He knew what had happened to them after they left His presence. Uh, maybe He was even referencing some of the people that He had just cast devils out of, and He knew what was going to come of their life, and He was talking about people whom God had worked miraculously in their life. Stop and think about something. Has God showed up big in your life? Let me try that again. Hey, on a sleepy Sunday night, has God showed up big in your life? He sure enough has in mine. Listen, Jack, just one or two times that God showed up would be enough for me to brag about, praise about, rejoice about for the rest of my life. And undoubtedly, those in this room would testify that God has worked miracles in your life. He has done amazing things. In your life. Can I tell you something tonight? Just because He has done amazing things in your life, that does not mean that you can let down your guard as relates to the devil himself, as relates to satanic influence. Because, hey, listen to what the Bible says in Luke chapter 4 about the Lord Jesus Himself. After spending 40 days in the wilderness fasting, He was tempted of the devil and three times. In other, the devil didn't just come to Him one time. The devil came to Him Three times. And then the Bible says after that third time, after he had rebuffed him, after he had defeated him, that when the devil, verse 13 of Luke chapter 4, when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him. What's these next three words? For a season. I'm saying this, it don't matter how godly you are, how spiritual you are, or think you are. It doesn't matter what all's happened in your life. Doesn't matter how many mountains God moved, how many seas God's parted. Doesn't matter what in your life has taken place. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how experienced you are. Doesn't matter what you've done in life or not done in life. I don't care who you are. The devil is looking for you. Uh, he seeks to devour you. He seeks to destroy you. I don't care who you are. You may have been married 400 years. That don't mean your marriage can't fall apart. You may have been walking with God 400 years. That don't mean you can't wind up in the ditch. I don't care who you are. He's looking for you. He may depart for a season. You may rebuff His temptation for a season. God bless you. Wonderful. That's the will of God. That's what God wants you to do. But don't think for one moment that He's not going to be back. He's coming back. And so in this life, hey, listen, we are always at war, spiritually speaking, in this life. We see His return. So we see the dispossession of the unclean spirit. Now, we must say this. There are, by the testimony of this passage, there are some folks whom the Lord cast devils out of that evidently, sooner or later, a devil came back in to their vessel and possessed them once again. I think it is safe to say we could look at, if no one else, Mary Magdalene herself and see that there were those whom the devil cast out of their vessel, out of their person, who remained faithful to the Lord for the rest of their life and walked with God and wound up closing out this sojourn in faithfulness to the Lord. So here's the question. What's the difference? Can I say this to you tonight? As as a pastor has been at this for a little bit, I've seen folks get messed up, and then I've seen them get right. 
And I've seen folks that I never would have thought get messed up, get messed up and go wrong and be out. In other words, I've saw people that you would have thought were hopeless that are walking with God today. And I would have uh, pointed you to people that looked like they were absolutely invincible. And today they're messed up and they're in the ditch and they're out of church and they're away from God and they're not interested in things of God. Some of them we could even say are reprobate today. What's the difference between the two? Because that's really the key question. The key question, see, it's more important how you end than it is how you begin. So the question is, what is the difference? Well, I've said a word about the dispossession of the unclean spirit. Can I point you to the discovery of the unclean spirit? The Bible leads us off in verse number 24 with the resolve of this unclean spirit. I will return into my house whence I came out. In other words, he's going to go back and revisit this man that he had departed from. Verse 25 tells us what he finds. The Bible says, and when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Matthew's account adds the descriptor that it was empty and swept and garnished. So, I find that when he goes back to this house, he finds three conditions about it that are worth noting. Now, before I even say a word about them, can I remind you that when the Bible uses the term house here, it's using it figuratively for this man's life. It goes back to this man's life. And I don't think it's necessarily talking about his physical person. There's no question as we study our Bible that so, uh, that, that devils and, and Satan himself had the ability, you know, they're not ethereal beings. They had the ability to affect a man's physical body and properties. The Bible talks about a devil that Jesus cast out, rending a man whenever he came out. I, I'm not saying that they uh, did not deal in the tangible world, but I am recognizing that what's being spoken, what, what the devil possesses, he may be in your body, but it is your it is your spirit or your soul, it is your person that he takes the governance and the control of. And so when the Bible says it, he went back to this man's house, speaking about more than just his, I wouldn't say it's speaking about less than his physical body, but it's speaking about more than his physical body. And it says that he found it in three ways. He found this man's life in three conditions. Notice number one with me tonight, he finds it cleanly what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible says that it's swept. It's swept. That means that it's tidy. That means that it's neat. That means all of the filth has been removed. And then the Bible says that it was garnished. It's easy to skip over that phrase, that word, that descriptor there in the passage to just see it as swept and clean. But no, the Bible says it was garnished. Now, garnish is something that you, in the culinary world, you put it on a plate so it'll look pretty. Amen. And that's what the Bible says about this man's life. Not only was it clean, but it was cleanly appointed. It was set in order. It was, we might say, a fully furnished house. It was, it, it had everything that it needed in order to exist. And it's a reminder to me that, listen, all attempts at self-reformation, apart from the power of God and the person of Christ, are in vain. I'm not against a man trying to get his life in order. I'm not against a person trying to find whatever means or systems might help them in that endeavor. But I'm just telling you this. If all you've done is got all the dirt out of your life and you've not put anything back into it, uh, you've not done anything when it comes to safeguarding yourself against the future. We see this time and time again. And listen, even the secular world picks up on this. And that's why all of these 
Various programs and meetings encourage people to take up hobbies and encourage people to take up writing and journals and all these different things because they're trying to get them to fill their life with something so that whenever the devil comes back to it, he doesn't find it cleanly appointed. Nothing there. Here's the spiritual truth. It's not enough to get rid of the dirt. There's got to be something else there. We find that he finds it cleanly appointed. There's no filth. But he also, the Bible says, finds it empty. Matthew's account, empty. Now, I don't think that means there was no furniture in it, because that's what it means when it says garnished. In other words, it's not saying there was no pictures on the wall, no furniture uh, against the wall. It's not saying that he couldn't find any utensils in the kitchen. But here's what he couldn't find. He couldn't find any life there. There was nothing living there. So he walks in and he finds a place that is entirely beautiful, but yet is quiet and is dead on the inside. He finds it completely or cleanly appointed, but he also finds it completely abandoned. And I'm going to just go ahead and wrestle this alliteration right over into the spiritual realm and say this. Not only was there no filth, but spiritually speaking, there was no faith. There was no life that was present there. This can be a description of many churches that exist in our day, it can be a description of many marriages that exist in our day. They may have on the outside all the trappings of, of success and of what a marriage ought to be, but if, if the Lord's not at the center of it, and if Christ is not preeminent in it, if there's no love in the midst of it, then it's meaningless. But the context of it makes it clear. Who he's talking about and what he's talking about is a person that has tried to reform their life. They've sought to have a new leaf without a new life. And it has left them with absolutely nothing. Listen to how the Lord Jesus described the Pharisees in the New Testament. I thought this was quite instructive. In Matthew 23, he's pronouncing rebukes and, and woes and pronouncements upon the Pharisees. And he says this in verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, tombs, he says, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Can I remind you of a very basic spiritual truth? God communicated to David uh, when he was just a young man that, hey, listen, God uh, looks on the inward. That doesn't mean God don't look on the outside. See, man looks on the outside, but he can't look on the inside. So he has to judge the inside by the outside. God can look at the outside and the inside. So he knows about the outside, but he chooses to judge a man's character by the inside. Now listen, if the inside is right, it'll make the outside right a lot of people walking around today that know how to put on a mask and put on a show and have a lot of outward righteousness, but inside they are dead. Dead, dead, dead. We find in this passage, he finds this place completely abandoned. And here is the very crux of the issue. All attempts of self-reformation without communion and fellowship and spiritual leaning upon the person of Christ who fellowship with him. And I'm talking to believers. We're not saying first step communion is get born again. I'm talking to believers right now. You can try to make God a thousand promises. Uh, you'll break every one of them. You can try to turn over 
a thousand leaves, but it won't change anything until you get God at the center of your life, until you fill your life with the things of God, with the music of God, with the Word of God, with prayer, with witnessing, with getting right with God and staying right with God, until you get true holiness on the inside. All attempts of self-reformation will all fall flat. You know why? Because he finds it cleanly appointed. There's no fill. He finds it completely abandoned. There's no faith. There's no life. There's no fruit. There's nothing living and breathing on the inside. It's dead inside. It has outward vestiges. But no signs of life inside. And you know what that means? He also finds it conveniently available. I wrote this out beside it. There's no foe for him. In other words, he comes into this thing and he walks around and he says, Boy, what a beautiful house. Got all the furniture I need. It's spick and span. There's not a spot of dirt anywhere. There's no one living here anyway. So he says, since no one's here, I believe I'll just move in myself. Here is the very, the very issue at hand. It was never your power. It was never the resolve of your will that drove the devil out in the first place. It was always the power of God. So what would make us think if we go and clean out our life and make a, a thousand promises and make a million commitments... But if we don't fill it with, with a life of devotion to God and of a relationship with Christ, what would make us think the devil's going to stay away in the first place? He'll come back and take residence in our life. And again, I understand all the distinctions between possessing, uh, possession and oppression and, and where we stand as believers. But I'm saying this, if you want results that last, if you want God to gain ground that won't be lost, if you want real lasting victory, then it's going to have to be... Hey, listen, the, the battle is going to have to be followed up by a close relationship with Him. It's not enough to just see God split the Red Sea and then turn around and walk right back into Egypt. You've got to continue to walk with God. You've got to be faithful to Him. I'm not saying you have to do that to stay saved. I'm not saying you have to do that to get saved. I'm saying if you want your life to not be shipwrecked, if you want lasting victory, if you want to continue to uh, to progress in your walk with God, then it's going to have to be a walk with God. Not just a mountaintop experience. So this devil comes back, this unclean spirit comes back, and he finds it swept and garnished. Now what does he do? The Bible says in verse 26, Then goeth he. So he doesn't walk in and, and throw down his, his sleeping bag and say, well, here I am. He doesn't. He doesn't plant tent stakes or, or put a flag out in the yard. No, he does something else first. The Bible says, Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. We see the dispossession of the unclean spirit, the discovery of the unclean spirit, but we also see the duplication of the unclean spirit. Notice first off, the invitation. He's not satisfied just to, to dwell in the man's life as he once did. Instead, because he now has a refreshed and renewed opportunity, he sees it as a chance to gather more satanic influence into this person's life. Isn't it interesting? Hey, listen, that numbers matter in your Bible, am I right? Before this man, or this devil, is one devil by himself, and typically the number one when it's used by itself denotes the idea of unity solidarity. But when he goes out, he doesn't get four devils, the, the number of the world and its universality. He doesn't get five devils, 
uh, which could deal with grace or, or with death. He doesn't get three devils, which would be the, the signature of God. He doesn't get two devils, which uh, speaks of, uh, of either communion, fellowship, or it speaks of compare and contrast. He doesn't even get uh, six devils, which would be the number of man. The Bible says he takes seven other spirits. Seven being the number of comprehensive perfection. Completion. With him, I guess that makes number eight, doesn't it? Number eight. You know what the number eight is? It's a it's a number of new beginnings. Now we're used to thinking about that in a positive light. Praise the Lord for it. Listen, I, I I'm glad that we think about the number eight as it relates to dispensations. For instance, that eighth dispensation will be that endless day uh, when God's made everything whole, made everything perfect, and and we could talk about the the you know the days they spent on the ark, and we uh, we could talk about in the Old Testament there were seven men raised from the dead, and Christ was the eighth. He ushered in a a new way of of resurrection, of new life, a new beginning. We think about it in terms of positive things, but here I think we have it illustrated in a negative sense that the satanic influence in this man's life it had entered into a new phase. There was a sense of finality, and I'll say a word about it here in a moment about the condition that this man finds himself in. And can I just say this to you? Hey, listen, the devil ain't going to be satisfied to come back for what he had before. He's going to want more. Because he always wants more. He goes and he takes seven other spirits more wicked than himself. By the way, that word used for more wicked, it's the only time you'll find it in your King James Bible. There is a unique quality to the wickedness that's being spoken of here. It is a level above. That's what I'm trying to get. It's not, it's not what we would consider ordinary wickedness. It's a wickedness that is deeper, that is more nefarious, that is more lasting than what was present there before. Notice not only the invitation, notice the habitation. The Bible says they enter in and they dwell there. Meaning they, they put down stakes and they never intend to leave again. They never intend to leave again. I want to be cautious with what I'm about to say because I don't want to step out into any place where I don't have scriptural authority. But suffice it to say that even when God works in our life once, He's done it by grace. Let alone when He works again and again and again and again. And I'm not saying that a, that a person ever gets far, so far that God can't help them. Thank the Lord that God can always help a person. But it is a fact that for folks to get help, they've got to be willing to reach out to God. They've got to be willing to hear God. They've got to be willing to yield to God. And I don't think there ever reaches a point where God wouldn't help a person if they came to Him. But I do think a person can get to the point where they won't come to Him anymore. Because their life is in such pieces. Because the devil has such a grip upon them. In other words, I'm saying this. Hey, you got victory before. You don't know if you'll ever get it again. So you better guard it carefully. Say, but preacher, God can. I know God can. I don't know if you will. You got victory before. God broke the chains. God set you free. God led you to a higher rock, a rock higher than you. Don't throw that away. Because it's not easy to get back again. I'm reminded, I'll just say this in passing. The Old Testament, Moses goes up on the mountain and God writes with His finger upon a tablet of stone and gives those stones to Moses. And Moses goes down the mountain and when he gets down, he sees the people worshiping the, the golden calf in, in paganism and idolatry. And in his anger, in his fury, he throws down the tablets and he breaks them. God commands Moses then to hew two tablets and to carry him up the mountain because now Moses is going to engrave the, the commands of God as God dictates them back to him. Boy, don't you know it must have been a hard hike up that mountain. 
carrying two tablets. Sometimes it's harder the second time up the mountain. Sometimes we throw things away. And, and I'll just tell you this, if the devil gets his foot in your life again, he don't intend on letting you go. I'm not saying God can't deliver you, and, and he certainly can. And if you find yourself in that shape, you say, what would you say to me, preacher? If you found out I got messed up and got in the ditch, I'd say, call on God. He'll listen. And he will. But I'm just saying, you better not tempt fate. Because we don't know how many more times we'd even be in a condition to listen to the counsel given to us by the man of God or the word of God. Notice their habitation. And then finally, notice their devastation. It's summed up in one tragic phrase that the last state of that man is worse than the first. The phrase last state here does not necessarily merely mean last relative to the first, but it means the final state of that man. The end state of that man. Meaning there's no state after that state for that man. Meaning that where he landed once this whole episode was done was where he stayed. And that that state was worse than the first. I told you that I would share with you a word about those dry places, didn't I? I've not done that yet, have I? Let's consider it. Turn with me to Jude chapter 1. Don't turn to Jude chapter 2. Turn to Jude chapter 1. It's interesting. The Bible says back here in our text in Luke, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places. You know, you'll only find that word for dry places in three different areas. The word of God, three different passages. One is in Matthew 12, I believe it's verse 43, and it's the parallel account of this parable. And it's worded precisely exactly the same, that he walketh through dry places. Then it's found here in our text in Luke chapter 11, verse 24. He walketh through dry places. One other place that it's found, and it's in the little epistle of Jude. Listen to what it says. Now, I'm going to read verse 4 and then I'm going to skip ahead some because I want there to be a continuity of thought here. But it says, For there are certain men crept in unaware. Jude is warning this fledgling church. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now that, that doesn't mean that God had predestinated these men to condemnation. But what it does mean is that God said a long time that if you go down this path, it's going to lead to condemnation. It doesn't mean these men had to go down this path, but it does mean that that path led to condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about reprobates. Reprobates. People that claim the name of Christ, but have turned their back upon him. Most of us, I think we would say, and in most situations, that these individuals were never saved in the first place. Not because uh, a saved person can't get backslidden. They can get backslidden. Uh, in fact, you can get so backslidden that you, you forget that you were washed from your old sins. That's what Peter said. And certainly a person can get backslidden uh, to that degree, but simply based upon what Paul says about those that departed, that they went out from us because they were not of us. And understanding that typically a relationship with Christ will will bear fruit in a person's life. 
And so I think it's safe to say that the reprobates in view here, and especially in the condemnation given in the following verses, it's speaking about unsaved individuals. But it's speaking about reprobates, people that claim the name of Christ. At one time they would have went to church with you. They would have shook hands with you. They would have put tithe into the offering plate. They would have amen the preacher. These were people that you would have considered the people of God. And now he says that they've turned away. He says, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, which means... Uh, a worship of works and of self-reliance and of self-worth and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, meaning materialism. They've yielded to uh, pursuing uh, worldly pleasures and riches above uh, the word of God and the things of God and perished in the gainsaying of core. That's being a rebel and a renegade and seeking to usurp authority from God and seeking to subvert God's order of things. Then he says this about these men. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast without you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are, look at this next phrase, without water. Same word that's used in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11. He goes on to say they're carried about of winds, that they're trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, that they are, notice this, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own, out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I, when I read this passage in Luke chapter 11, my mind immediately went back to that phrase, and I had to, I had to hunt it up exactly where it was, but immediately like a bell toll, it began to peel out in my mind when I thought about in Luke chapter number 11, a man that's been delivered from the power of Satan, and then Satan comes back in and gets a grip in his life again. I immediately thought of this phrase, it rung out like a bell twice. It's talking about people that have tasted of the goodness of God, that have seen that God is gracious, that know the truth, uh, that maybe even have atmospherically experienced the goodness of God and yet have turned their backs and walked away from it and allowed Satan to have a foothold in their life. These are what we call reprobates. And I believe in the passage in Jude, and there's a very similar passage in the book of 2 Peter, I believe it is a progressive pathway that's shown. In other words, I don't think he's just saying all these things are true about these men. I, I think he's saying, because he just got through uh, back in verse number 4, saying that these men were of old ordained to this condemnation. In other words, they're on a path, they're headed down a road. And I think he tells us what that path is. He says it starts by them being spots in your feast of charity. Now when you see a spot on something, I was looking earlier on my on my britches and I had a spot on it somewhere. That's what happens when you've got kids, they're nasty. They're sticking Mine smells like peanut butter right now. I'll let you figure out why that might be. But uh, I looked down and I saw that spot and you notice it immediately. You know how you notice it? Because you look down and you see the pattern of the clothing and you say, something's off. Something's not right. Something stands out. Now listen, I don't believe God calls us to a, to a uniformity of existence. I don't believe God is against individuality. I'm just saying this, that the first way that this starts with these people is when they become discontent with the things of God and they begin to choose to try to make their own way and path apart from the truth of the Word of God. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. They tend to be people. Uh, eventually, they, they make it all about them and they're unafraid of, 
of the damage and effect that it might have on other people. He says clouds they are without water. They dry up, spiritually speaking. They have no nourishment. You know what a cloud without water is? Worthless. I mean, I understand we like, we, we don't, we're not farmers and so we like it when it's a bright sunny day or, or we even sometimes we'll, we don't even care if the cloud has water. If it's hot outside, we appreciate the shade. But in that day, when you were farming for a living, when you were trying to make your living from the land, a cloud without water was worthless. They were unproductive, spiritually speaking. They could talk a good talk, but it didn't produce anything. He says carried about of winds. And by the way, I found that to be true. People ain't doing anything for God tend to be carried about. People that don't have any depth in their spiritual walk, that aren't bearing spiritual fruit, they tend to be carried about. The wind blows them around. They're happy this minute, mad this minute. They're here one minute. They're gone the next minute. They're living for God here. They give up on God over here. And that's how these people are described. He says, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit. Isn't that interesting the way it says that? We talked about that word redundancy. Well, it appears... But when it says without fruit, it's talking about trees in their autumnal situation. In other words, trees in the fall of the year, when they ought to be bearing something, when they ought to be producing something, but you come up on them and there's no fruit there. They got leaves, but they got no life. They've got foliage, but they got no fruit. They look good on the outside, but there's no substance to it. And here's why, because they're twice dead, plucked up by the roots. In other words, I think we could go on. I won't for time's sake. But he's saying there's a path here. There's a path here. And you know, in our lives, I believe we have a gracious God. I'm thankful His mercies are new every morning. But I don't think we should dismiss the fact that every time we allow sin into our lives and every time we allow the devil to have a foothold in our lives, we condition ourselves. We, we permit ourselves to grow comfortable with His influence in our life. And let me just say it this way. Every time you sin, it gets easier to sin. It's like getting out, isn't it? Getting out. Have you ever found that out? you ever found you miss church and, and then you know what? The next time it's easier to miss. And the next time it's easier to miss. And the next time it's easier. And it only takes four or five times and getting back to church is like climbing Mount Everest. I'm saying in our lives, every time that we go back, Every time that we allow the devil to have influence in our lives again, every time we allow those chains to be put back on us, every time it becomes easier for the next time. We better recognize if we allow the devil any room in our life, what's he going to do? He's going to gather as much wicked, satanic influence as he can. Say, preacher, that that scares me. What do I do about that? You fill up that void. You fill up that space with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not saved, get born again. And guess what? He'll take up residence in your life and you'll be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And if you're already saved, but you say, Preacher, I find myself just like Groundhog's Day every day. Preacher, what can I do? Well, listen, focus your attention and focus your heart upon the Lord Jesus. Spend time every day reading the Word of God. Spending time in prayer. Thinking on the things of God. Meditating upon the things of God. Talking to people about the Lord. Sharing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Being faithful to the things of God. Fill your life up with the things of God. And you'll find that when the devil comes walking by and peeks in your window, he'll say, Shoo, there's somebody already living there. I am not going to, and I remember him too. He's the one kicked me out of here in the first place. So I sure enough ain't going to go kicking in that door. I know what will happen to me. The greatest safeguard against the influence of the devil is the presence of the Lord. Let's have the presence of the Lord in our lives. Let's bow together. The musician comes to play, the altar's open.
whatever God may have done in your heart, in your mind, in your life, I just want you to respond, be obedient to Him. And I believe what we've needed to accomplish will have been accomplished. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for this opportunity. Bless your people this evening. I pray they get help from you. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.